12 through 25. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. The word of God for the people of God. morning. Glad you're here. Enjoyed the worship. It was great to worship together. That corporate worship of God is so important to our whole soul and spiritual life. And You know, we come to just feast on the word. Amen. Amen. We're continuing our journey through the gospel of Mark. We're at the end of Mark where we're focusing on the final few days of the life of Jesus. We have been in the final week of Jesus's life and that's where the Gospels emphasize in detail what's taking place. Today we'll look at the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We look at Jesus as he departs from the script of the Passover that he has been that has been reenacted for generation after generation and he inaugurates a new feast the feast we call the Lord's Supper the Lord's table communion the cup the Eucharist the scriptures call this meal all of these names the feast was not necessarily that great the Passover feast because of the food but it was great because of what it represented 
The Passover meal represented God's deliverance of his people, Israel, from slavery to Egypt. Passover was this annual meal that commemorated a defining moment in the history of Israel. And Jesus takes that Passover and changes the script to all that the Passover pointed to for all these years and all these generations after generations. The Passover meal was foreshadowing something great to come. And we'll look at today that Passover fulfillment in Jesus. We'll look at the bread. Like bread? Bread's good, right? Wine. We'll look at the wine. We'll look at the lamb. And we'll look at this new family and this future feast to come. So first, the bread. The Passover meal had to be prepared in a certain way, and it had a very distinct form. The bread, of course, maybe you'd know, is unleavened. And when it was presented by the presider over the Passover meal, the kind of the head of the household, who that would be, uh, they would do it in a certain way. It had a very distinct form. But Jesus is the presider over this Passover meal. His family is unique and different in that it is his 12 disciples. And he takes this bread and says, normally, the normal presider would say, this is the bread of our affliction, which our fathers ate in the wilderness. But Jesus, we read in verse 22, departs from that script. Must have been very astonishing to, to have this celebrated uh, for generations and you know over a thousand years and done the same way. And then all of a sudden to hear this being presented differently. Jesus departs from that script, takes the bread, and after blessing it, he breaks it and he gives it to them and says, Take, this is my body. Man, that must have been just like mind-blowing. You know, like, what? What do you even mean? Take, this is my body. Imagine just, uh, you know, it's good to know some about the Passover. Imagine, to, to imagine yourself being uh, of Israel and being generations and generations passed down the most, you know, one of the most important celebrations, a week-long feast of unleavened bread and then this Passover meal, celebrating this meal together, how important meals were. Have you ever had a good meal where you sat down and you really like connected with the people? That's what meals were. They were fellowshipping. It meant when you ate with someone that you approved of them and approved of their life and what they were doing. It had all of these things and you invited them in. There was this, and this, this meal meant even more than all of that together. It meant their freedom, it meant their deliverance, it meant their identity, it meant who they were, it had all these things incorporated and it was so deep um, over a thousand years of this memorial, this remembering, this is who we are. Um, and so what is Jesus doing here? What does he mean, take this bread, it is my body? Well, remember what they said, this is the bread of our affliction. So Jesus is saying, this bread represents my affliction. This is my body. This bread represents my suffering. 
I am the fulfillment of all that the bread represents in this Passover meal. Think of that, it was unleavened. There was no leaven in this bread because in Jesus, there was no sin. Leaven represented sin. There was no leaven. Jesus is that bread. He is that bread of life. He is the true life without the stain of sin. What must that have looked like? Oh, to be there, to be there with Jesus. This is my body. Take this bread, eat of it. It is my body without stain, without the stain of sin. And yet, I will die. I will suffer death. Yet I'll suffer the punishment. I'll offer up my body to be sacrificed. My affliction, this bread is my body, my sinless suffering. I will offer it as a substitute in your place. This bread represents my affliction, my suffering, and my body. This bread is my body. I mean, to soak in that, to meditate in that. Jesus had told his disciples over and over again, and Mark records it three times, that the Son of Man must suffer. In Mark 8.31, Mark 9.31, Mark 10.34, he tells them this story over and over again of what the Son of Man will happen to him, what will happen to him. And it involves suffering. It involves his affliction. It involves him being this bread of affliction, this suffering. He tells them over and over again that the Son of Man will be rejected. In in Mark 10, he says it this way about his suffering. Uh, He will be mocked. He will be spit on. He will be flogged and killed. And on the third day, he will rise again. He's presenting the gospel, his, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. And he does this over and over again, and it says they were without understanding on this. It was just like, that's not the Messiah. Who, who are you talking about, man? You, you, you refer to yourself as the Son of Man, but this can't be you. It just did not soak into them. And handing them this bread, I'm sure it didn't soak in, that this was the bread of my affliction. He's telling them over and over again, the Son of Man will suffer. He will be flogged. He will be afflicted. This whole Passover meal is not our affliction. It's the fulfillment in me of my affliction. This bread is my body. Take it. Peter would later get it, and he would write this in 1 Peter 2, 24. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he got it. He finally gets it, and he's writing about it. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree. He got it. He got his suffering finally. He got that the bread was the bread of his affliction and his suffering. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Oh, man, we need his suffering. We need his body that suffered on that tree and suffered in Peter saying, this is what heals you. This is the ultimate exodus. The ultimate deliverance is in and through the affliction of the bread of life, Jesus, on that tree. Take and eat. This is my body, the body of my affliction for you. I love it. I love seeing 
Peter's development, his rejection, his denial, his all of that, and then him coming to write that in First Peter, and it's like, you've got it. That's about like us, right? You know, I'm, I'm feeling like I'm getting older in my 60s and just, you know, growing, and I'm just like I'm still learning things. I'm still getting who Jesus is in such deep ways. He's drilling it down into my heart. I think all of us grow this way, and I love to see that process in Peter. Him just saying, Jesus committed no sin, but he suffered in his body. His, his bread uh, had no leaven in it, no sin, but he suffered in his body the affliction of my sin. He died in my place. He died as my substitute. And he says, we, by his wounds, are healed by his suffering, by his scourging. When he was mocked, when he was spit on, when he suffered and died, his wounds bore in his body our sin. And he's provided the ultimate Passover of our sin. Ah, he paid the price in his own body. Tim Keller said this in uh, Jesus the King. He said, Jesus was saying, this is the bread of my affliction, the bread of my suffering, because I'm going to lead the ultimate exodus and bring you the ultimate deliverance from bondage, from the bondage of sin. Take it. Have you taken it? You can have a great, nice bread right there, but have you ever eaten it? Have you ever tore a piece off and eaten it? It can be there. It can be presented. But have you taken of it? Will you take of it? Will you eat of it? Will you see it as the affliction of Jesus for you? And then he takes the wine, this cup. In Mark 14, 23, he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. In verse 23 and 24, he says, And he said to them, this is going to depart again. This is not what's said with the cups and the Passover. This is my blood. What are you talking about? Presiding over this Passover meal. This is my blood. Of the covenant. The covenant. They knew the lamb. They knew Moses. They knew the covenant established, which is poured out for many. What is Jesus doing? What is he saying with this cup? All that the blood of the Passover lamb was accomplishing that had to be shed once a year for each family. It was a family. A family had to sacrifice. Uh, Exodus 12 gives the instruction if your family was too small and you were getting a lamb and you couldn't eat a whole lamb, you'd join with a neighboring family and you'd share, okay, like this lamb will be enough for us. So sometimes families join, but there was always a family household together with this lamb and this blood that would mark. And so... This blood is that. It is shed once a year to cover over the family, to have their sins put off for another year until the next year when they would do the same thing. But the writer of Hebrews explains the blood this way. In Hebrews 9, 12, he entered once for all into the holy places. I love once and for all. Do you like that? That finality. One time! For all time, for all people. This <laughs> is like, man, the ultimate deliverance. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood. This is my blood in this cup. By the means of that blood, 
his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption, not just a one-year put-off of the sin, but a wiping of the slate clean. Scarlet, like Isaiah would say, your sins of scarlet, made white as snow, a one-time offering. It's like the fulfillment of everything God was promising for years and years and years and generations, Jesus is saying, it's the cup of my blood. It's a, it's a new covenant. It's the old covenant fulfilled completely in one sacrifice, one time, Jesus' blood. It fulfills the Passover lamb's ultimate sacrifice and ending the need of a Passover lamb to shed its blood ever again, the ended sacrifice. There's this, the lamb. The lamb was an important part of the meal. You had the bread, the wine, the lamb. There's another departure here from the Passover script because none of the Gospels mention the main course. Passover was not a vegetarian meal. What kind of Passover meal is this? Come on, Mark, you're writing this. Where's the, the meat in this story, the lamb? Tim Keller says this in his book, Jesus the King. He said, there was no lamb on the table because the lamb of God was at the table. I just love that. Man, that has sunk into my heart for years. Jesus was the main course. He was there. He was the lamb of God, just like John the Baptist saw. Man, can you imagine seeing that with John and John, following John the Baptist, being one of his disciples, and him pointing at Jesus and goes, Behold! Like, look at that man walking right there. And you're like, what? Who is it? The Messiah, the great king, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, behold that. I mean, just imagine this. Jesus, the Lamb at the table, taking away the sin of the world. This is what I'm about to do. It's in my affliction. I'm the bread. My blood. It's in my blood. I am the Lamb. I will do this. I will be and willingly be the Lamb of God. That's this willingness Isaiah uh, says. Isaiah 53, 6 through 7 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. This is kind of woven into to Mary's opening prayer this morning about sheep and wanting on our own way and going our own way. And Isaiah is saying that. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all on him he was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears so he opened not his mouth jesus was the lamb isaiah just said that like we're like sheep we go astray but this one suffering servant would become like one of us. He would be a lamb too. He would be like a lamb in his suffering. He would be afflicted. He would be led to the slaughter. He would not open his mouth when he was being sheared. Uh, he was willingly would allow all of our iniquity to be put on him by the Father. Here's all their sin. I'm going to put it on you. Take these lambs, these sheep, these stubborn lambs, going their own way, forcing, wanting their own way, thinking it's better. 
and taking and putting all on you who never went your own way, who always did my will. Our rebellious turning to our own way like stubborn sheep laid upon Jesus, the Lamb of God. Can you hear John cry, behold the Lamb today? He's not on the table, he's at the table. And he's inviting you to the table. Come to the table. Will you partake of this meal? Will you see the bread as the affliction of Jesus? Will you see the wine as the covenant made in the blood of Jesus? Will you see the lamb inviting you to come and partake of him and the meal that he has provided for us? Josh Garrels uh, sings a song called Bread and Wine. And he says, faithful are the wounds of friends, so give it just a little time. Share some bread and wine. Weave your heart into mine, my friend. I both hear Jesus calling, saying, weave your heart into mine. Come and sit with me at this table and share some bread and wine with me. Experience my life. Experience the rest from the struggle against the stain of sin because I've paid the price for it all. And you're clean and you're whole. Sin has no more bondage over you. The chains, by his amazing grace, have been broken. Come and enjoy me at this table Jesus woos us. But I also hear that we're friends as we come and share at this table. That God was doing something unique and creating a new family. As I mentioned, he, the Passover meal was meant for families. Families went home to their families. They suffered, they, they, they celebrated Passover with their families. It was a household event. Jesus didn't go, okay, Peter, you know, there's the only one that we know that was married. You know, they mentioned Peter going to his mother-in-law's house and different things like that. You know, Peter, go home and celebrate Passover with your family, you know, so make sure you do this meal, right, and preside over your home, you know, and all the rest of you go home with your mom and dad, be present with your, you know, parents, you know, all this. Jesus is, is creating something new here. It's, it's evident in the Passover meal. Where are we going to celebrate Passover? Go into the town. Do this. You're going to find this. There's going to be an upper room. We're going to get together, and I'm going to preside over this meal. He's creating something whole new. He's inaugurating the Lord's Supper. Something different. A unique kind of new family. This departure from them going home over their household. Uh, Exodus was real clear on this in, in chapter 12, verses 3 through 4. Tell the congregation of Israel in the tenth day, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And this is where he says in verse 4, if the household is too small for a lamb, then uh, he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of the persons, according to what each one can eat of this lamb, you shall count for the lamb. So it was over a household. This feast was eaten with families. The Passover meal was a family meal. Why is Jesus pulling his disciples out of their families? Why isn't Jesus with his own family? Why didn't Jesus go home to his mom and his brothers and family and celebrate Passover? Jesus is purposeful in all that he does. He is creating altogether a new family. Parents to children, children to parents, brothers and sisters, grandparents all share a powerful bond of shared experiences together. 
But earlier in Mark, something happened. Jesus was pointing towards this. We see Jesus talking about a new family. See his mother and brothers come to see him. His family come. And Mark records this in Mark 3.35, where Jesus goes, I'll tell you who my family is. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So he's creating and establishing. He's saying that this powerful common bond that Christ followers will have will be new family. It's a, con- it's, it, you know, you think of it like, what is this bond? Is this bond a common race? Was it all about being of a certain race? Was it being uh, about being of a certain nationality? Is it a uh, common education, having the same educational level and maybe the, some same uh, income level together? Is that the common bond that Christians will share? Will they share the same political and social ideas? No, none of these does the Bible say will be this common bond that creates this new family. The powerful new common bond is that one thing, that they have been saved by Jesus Christ. That's the powerful bond that unites this new family together. They have one shared experience that is the same, and that is that they have faith in the blood of Jesus, the body of Jesus, to cleanse them from their sins and to be saved. And it is the most powerful bonding experience for this new family. This bond will be so life-transforming that it creates a basis for the unity as strong as if the people had been raised together in a physical family. That's pretty powerful. I don't know how many of us experience this. I was trying to explain this to some of my grandchildren. I'm like, because I come from a real big family and lots of brothers and sisters and we talk and we say happy birthday and we do things and we had shared experiences growing up. We have common bonds and a lot of them run really deep. Uh, but I was like, I talk to and share with my life more with people right here than I do any of them. I mean, in the last 15 years, especially uh, with Grace Harvest Church, you know, my life is invested here. And it's invested with you all. And, and, and I was explaining that this new family Uh, that we have in Christ because we have that shared experience of Jesus together and it is the most powerful life transforming experience and if you have that experience no matter what else our differences are we have that we're brothers and sisters we're family in God and it creates this new family new friendships it creates something for the future. Jesus leaves a future. So it's the bread, it's the wine, it's the lamb, and it's the family, the new family, but it's also the future feast. And here's the scripture where he's pointing towards the future. He says in Mark 14, 25, in our text, the closing verse says, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day. It's pointing towards something in the future, right? Everybody see it? Until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. He's given them this cup. He's given them this Passover meal. 
And not only is he saying he is the fulfillment, not only is he going to do it in the cross, but he's pointing to something in the kingdom of God in the future that I won't drink this cup again until that day, this future day. To say this, what does this mean? Uh, you know, I will not drink again until we see this in Acts 23 happen. These uh, people bonded together in Acts 23 because for a bad purpose, they wanted to kill the Apostle Paul. They were like hated him. They hated that he had changed and was promoting this new thing, you know, and, and they're, they're, so they're going to kill him. Acts 23, 12 through 14. Uh, when it was day... The Jews made a plot to bond themselves together by an oath. And that's what it, what it means when he says, I will not drink again until that day. He's bonding himself to them with an oath. He's making a promise to them. This is a promise of, of the future. And this is what happened there. They bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. And verse 13 says, uh, there were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. And they went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food until we have killed Paul. So that's what they're saying. We won't eat or drink, you know, until he's dead. And Jesus is doing this. This is just bringing out the meaning when Jesus says, Truly, tr truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. He's pointing towards this future day in the kingdom when it's fully consummated it's fully realized and one of the imageries of the bible is that jesus is this bridegroom even john the baptist said it man he's the bridegroom i'm stepping to the side i'm going to decrease he must increase he's he's a man not me you know, and, and he, he uses this bridegroom term, you know, he uses this wedding metaphors. The first miracle Jesus does is, is at a wedding, you know, it's, it's, it's this metaphor runs all the way through the Bible. And it's a good conclusion along with the story of the lamb and the Passover. And we come to Revelation 19, verse 9. And John is seeing, John the Revelator, John <coughs> is seeing this. Revelation, and he says, Then he said to me, Write. Here's what John writes Blessed are those invited to the marriage feast. And you think he's going to say, Of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, he could say that, but he goes back to this imagery. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. The Lamb, again, comes forth the marriage feast. Is of the Lamb in Revelation. And he also said to me, these words of God are true. It's like he's announcing something that's so mind-blowing, so beautiful, so glorious, that he has to put this emphasis. He says this before and after this. <coughs> he actually says that these words are true, and they are from God. Because have you ever heard something that was too good to be true? And you go, oh, that can't be true. It's like John is going, I know I'm seeing something that's too good to be true. And, and the, the angel of God, the Lord, has told me to write this. And I'm writing it, but it's just the marriage feast of the Lamb. 
And it's so extravagant, it's so beautiful, I have to tell you that this is really going to happen, and that God really told me to write this, and that these words are really true. I was listening to a real, real old sermon from the 1800s. It was all written by Charles Spurgeon, and then they have somebody else read it, um, like they're preaching it. And uh, his sermons were really written out word for word, so they're reading it all, and he's preaching, and it's on this verse, Revelation 19.9, and it's about the marriage feast of the Lamb. And some of the little parts that I pulled out of it are this. He says, brethren, just to add one other thought, that marriage feast will be the grandest display of Christ's magnificent munificence. Have you ever heard that word, munificence? I had never heard that word. Um, most Christ's most magnificent munificence. I, I want you to leave with that today. If nothing else, you say that you left Grace Harvest with magnificent munificence. And munificence is the quality or action of being lavishly generous, just a great generosity, like the generosity of all generosities, munificence. Lavish generosity. And Charles Spurgeon meditating on this marriage feast of the Lamb, saying it's going to be so magnificent, so glorious, lavish. He, he talks about probably one of the most lavish things you've ever been to is a wedding and a wedding reception. One of my daughter-in-laws uh, got involved in doing weddings and kind of she led into a second career because uh, where she was living, people on average were spending between twenty-five and 35000 on their wedding, and most of it was on their reception. And so she was making all their little cakes and cupcakes and all their little things, commercial kitchen, you know, in her house, and just making everything. So that's what she got into. So weddings are one of the most probably posh parties you've ever been to. Is a, is a wedding reception, and it is for me uh, uh, the you know greatest meal, celebration, dance, party, elaborates. But imagine a wedding feast with no budget. There is no budget on this, this, this uh, wedding feast of the Supper of the Lamb. This one's been waiting for thousands and thousands of years. Jesus, we know at least for 2,000 years, waiting on his bride to get ready. And the preparation... For this wedding feast is going to be magnificent munificence. It's going to be so generous. It's going to be so uh, just spread out in, in this glory opulence. of it's, it's going to blow all of our minds beyond what we could think or imagine. How glorious this day is going to be. And Jesus is saying that at this Passover. I won't drink this cup again until I drink it with you at the marriage feast of the Lamb. He's pointing to a future feast. And future and hope is so important in our lives uh, to look for this. And Passover does that. There will be no more pain. There will be no more tears. There will be no more fear. Imagine perfect love casting out all fear. Imagine not fearing. You know, at a wedding, you're kind of fearing, I wonder if they're going to make it. You know what I mean? I wonder if this marriage is going to make it. You know, I wonder how long this love is going to last. But there will not be any of that. This love has already lasted with Jesus and the perf perfect love cast out all fear. I mean, this is an eternal redemption he has secured for us, the marriage feast of the Lamb. Charles Spurgeon goes on to say this about it. 
my beloved hearer, will you be there? He says this, if there were no hell, think about this, the loss of heaven would be hell. Don't even think about hell. Just think about the loss of heaven would be hell. That you're not going to be there at this marriage feast of the Lamb. That's hell. That's hell that you won't be there. He's trying to just cry out. And he says, if there were no hell to have missed Christ's wedding feast, is a Gehenna black enough? Just to miss this meal. He doesn't want anyone to miss this meal. I don't want anyone to miss this meal. Because it's going to be so magnificently unescent <laughs> that I want you to be there. Amen? Amen. So we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper today. We're going to give a small but very real taste of what that future looks like when he drinks that cup anew with us in the kingdom fully realized, fully the bride wed, consummated with her husband, Jesus. What a day that will be. What a day of rejoicing that will be. Amen. So I pray that communion, the Lord's Supper, that this is Jesus inviting you to the Lord's table. He's inviting us to do this that he established, he inaugurated and established for the church to participate when we come together to remember his death until he returns, until he comes again, until we have that great marriage feast of the Lamb, we do this. We get a foretaste of all that he has accomplished at the cross in his death and all that he has accomplished in his glorious resurrection. So I'm going to ask you to come, take one of these cups. They have the fruit of the vine in the top and they have the bread in the bottom. And if you're a believer, if you've put your trust in Jesus and you're saying this is what makes me family in the family of God that I put my faith in Jesus's shed blood for me his broken body for me and that's the only reason I'm saved and a part of the family of God put your trust in Jesus you're welcome to take of this communion with us so please come uh, return to your seats and we will take of these elements together
gave uh, instructions to the church at Corinth uh, on the Lord's Supper when they come to the table to do it uh, in a certain way. And he said this, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks to the Father for it. And he said, take, eat of it. This is my body. Do this in remembrance of me, a memorial to me. Let us partake of the bread together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, your Son. We thank you as we consume this bread. We think of Jesus, the bread of life. We think of his affliction, that he was mocked, spit upon, flogged, he suffered for us in our place. And we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Jesus, for your suffering for us. And we partake of this bread in faith remembering you and your suffering for us and what you did at the cross. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. In like manner, he took the cup. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, given for you for the remission of sins. Take and drink of it. And when you do, do this in remembrance of me and remember my death until I come, let us partake of the cup together. Thank you, Father, for making us your children through the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. What a generous Father you are. What a loving Father you are. We thank you, Jesus going all the way to the cross the joy set before you for the joy set before you you endured the cross thank you that you have joy in making us God's children making us brothers and sisters unite our hearts in unity and the unity of that love both with you our bridegroom, Jesus, and unite us at the, as the bride. Let us become that blameless, spotless bride that works together and becomes truly who you're making us to be. Just anoint our hearts right now, Lord, as we give you thanks to worship you worship you Jesus worship you that nothing but your blood Jesus could cleanse us from sin help us to worship you as we sing together as a family in Jesus name amen Show away my sin, nothing but the blood. 
says that all the blessings 
in Jesus and Christ are yours. We mentioned some of those today, that you are blessed in the bread and the wine and the lamb. You're blessed in a new family, and you're blessed with a future hope, a future marriage, feast, banquet of the lamb. Go in those blessings and be a light to this dark world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Love one another. Love one another.